I was absolutely disgusted, to be honest with you. I found it to be um, a, a shock. It left my jaw hanging on the ground, and I was in awe. I think that the jury thought it was a setup, and everybody else in America thought it was a setup. The evidence against OJ was so overwhelming, especially the DNA evidence. You know, it's kind of, I can't believe he got acquitted. It's amazing. I didn't feel that the evidence was strong enough to prove that he committed those crimes. The prosecution did not present their case in such a manner to convince me. I'm, I'm very upset about it. It makes me upset that I live in this city now. I mean, I was upset before with the riots and all that, but now this is like, I don't know what's going to happen. It's sending a message also to the black community that they can get away with stuff like this. I have a certain amount of resentment for other people deciding what black people feel, what black people do, what black people think. But, you know, we are human beings like all other people. And we make just decisions. We, the facts were there. Those were the reactions to the infamous 1995 O.J. Simpson trial verdict on the ABC program Nightline. The variety of opinions about the results, I think, speaks to the variety of opinions about the American criminal justice system. And many of those opinions are increasingly becoming negative. As Gallup put it, quote, From 1993 through 1997, more than twice as many Americans expressed little or no confidence as expressed high confidence in the criminal justice system. This coincided with negative publicity for the police and the justice system stemming from the 1991 Rodney King beating and the acquittal of four officers in that case in 1992, broader criticism of racial profiling during this period, and, subsequently, Americans' mostly negative reactions to the 1995 not guilty verdict in the O.J. Simpson trial, end quote. Well, in the months leading up to the trial, 9% of Americans had a, quote, great deal of confidence, end quote, in the criminal justice system. By 1996, that number was down to 6%. Since then, trends have shown that more and more people have confidence in the justice system. But even this year, a third of Americans still don't have confidence in it at all. The O.J. Simpson case represented a lot of things that many people felt were wrong with the American criminal justice system. Misinformed and biased jurors. Regardless of how you or anybody else felt about the ruling, there's no denying it evoked strong emotions, many of which were negative. On today's show, we're looking at how we might be able to make a system that could bring those numbers up again, and soothe some of the concerns that people have, including regarding biased and misinformed jurors, about the American juror system. I'm Cole, and this is Political Theory. Now, the Seventh Amendment to the U.S. Constitution reads, quote, In suits at common law, where the value in controversy shall exceed $20, the right of trial by jury shall be preserved, and no fact tried by a jury shall otherwise be re-examined in any court of the United States than according to the rules of common law, end quote. We're going to ignore the $20 clause, given that $20 then would be the equivalent of almost $345 now, and that our judicial system has changed to reflect that. And we're also largely speaking going to glaze over the part about no fact by a jury being re-examined, and jump straight into the part about the right of a jury being preserved, or the right of trial by a jury being preserved. On today's show, we're looking at first the pros and cons of the jury system by breaking it down and looking at what's working and what isn't, and then we'll look at a few reforms and a couple alternatives that could improve the systems. Now, the reason that a judge can't overturn a jury ruling, right, is evidenced by the part where it says, quote, no fact tried by a jury shall be otherwise re-examined in a court, end quote, is so that the government can't just sentence political enemies by making up charges. And that brings us to the first big reason that the jury system was chosen, kind of the first big pro of the jury system, is that it holds government in check. It stops the kind of tribunals that were seen during the Star Court. And if you've listened to earlier episodes of this podcast, then you may have picked up on a trend that uh, consistently occurs whenever we talk about the judicial system in America. 
that trend being that the abuse of government power in places like the Star Courts was commonplace in England. While the Star Court had been disbanded by the time the American Revolution was undertaken, the abuses that took place therein were fresh in the minds of colonists. They had heard firsthand the stories of abuse by singular government magistrates, who held absolute power to decide the fates of defendants. And so our founding fathers decided that a jury system would be a good way to hold government in check. Earlier democracies like those in ancient Greece and during the Roman Republic also employed a jury system. It was Thomas Jefferson who once wrote, quote, I consider trial by jury as the only anchor ever yet imagined by man, by which a government can be held to the principles of its constitution, end quote. Now, the second kind of big argument in favor of the jury system is that it engages civilians. Right? It familiarizes people with the legal system and their rights. They get to see it firsthand and even influence the way it's interpreted. It's uh, Alexis de Tocqueville who says, quote, It may be regarded as a gratuitous public school, ever open, in which every juror learns his rights, enters into daily communication with the most learned and enlightened members of his upper class, and becomes practically acquainted with the laws, which are brought up within the reach of his capacity by the efforts of the bar, the advice of the judge, and even the passions of the parties, end quote. And it's uh, Paul Mandel, who's a criminal defense lawyer, who wrote in The Guardian, quote, by bringing ordinary citizens into the system and placing them at the very heart of the decision-making process, trial by jury exposes the criminal justice system to their scrutiny, while ensuring that they gain first-hand experience of how that system works. End quote. And the third big reason, and I think really the primary reason that most people support the jury system, is that it reflects the values of the community. This goes back to the uh, core concept of democratic ruling, that we the people are the ones to influence the way we live our lives, and in the same way that when we vote for our our leaders were doing so based on our values, right? Typically, we elect congressmen, judges, and other local leaders because they share similar values to ours, whether it's political, social, or economic ideologies. The jury system does a similar thing. It's composed of people from the place where the crime was committed, usually, and subsequently, the person gets a ruling based on the political, social, or economic ideologies of the community wherein the crime was committed. To create an entire legal system that could be uniformly applied across the U.S. would be both difficult and somewhat undemocratic. That's why we have states' rights. States' rights are often an issue that are fought hard for because people want to have choice where they live their life. If you want to live in a state with more relaxed regulation, then you can go to a state like Mississippi. But if you want to live in a state that's more regulated, then you would go live in a state like Hawaii. In the same way that our legislative system uh, you know, reflects how both of those states and communities feel. Many people think that our jury system is the best shot we have at making sure that our judicial system reflects how each of those communities would feel about certain things as well. Take something like hunting laws. While in 2006 in the central northwest, 12% of the population actively participated in hunting, only 2% participated in hunting on the west coast. And I think we can take that to mean pretty clearly that feelings about hunting are different in those two places. That communities in the central northwest and the west coast have different feelings about hunting and a democratic system should be set up to reflect the differences in those values in each individual area. Well, many people argue the jury system allows for just that. If two people are pulled in front of a jury for violating similar hunting laws, the West Coast jury might opt out of a, or the West Coast jury might opt for a stricter punishment, while the Central Northwest uh, would probably opt for a lighter punishment if those are the kind of uh, values that the communities hold. Many people think that the jury system, because it reflects the community values, uh, it subsequently helps create a more democratic system, and that's really the big argument in favor of it. It's Rudolf Janata uh, who wrote in the forum through the American Bar Association, quote, a jury is able to bring the standards of the community to play in matters which it considers, standards which a judge, by the very nature of his position, cannot employ, end quote. But the jury system is certainly not without its critics, and today we're going to focus on two of the big arguments that are, you know, widely thrown against the jury system. 
The first one being that jurors are often under the impression that they're not biased. And in reality, they are. It's uh, Adam Benferrato, who's an associate professor of law at Drexel University, who wrote, wrote in The Atlantic, quote, Jurors are asked questions to determine if they have any beliefs, feelings, life experiences, or any other reason that might influence them in rendering a verdict. Uh, does the fact that the defendant was born in Guatemala matter to you? Would you discriminate against someone based on the color of uh, his skin? As a juror, you think about the person you are, somebody who believes deeply in equality, and you answer, no, of course not. You know you're not racist. Case closed. There's no threat of bias against uh, or toward a Hispanic defendant. What's so damaging about this is that a juror may end up mistakenly believing that he's capable of objectivity. End quote. Or consider these biases. A 1974 study titled The Effect of Physical Appearance on the Judgment of Guilt, Interpersonal Attraction, and Severity of Recommended Punishment in a Simulated Jury Task found that physically attractive defendants were judged with less certainty of guilt than unattractive defendants. Another study published in the Journal of Social Psychology titled The Effect Upon Judgments of Personality Traits of a Varying Single Factor in Photograph uh, found that people who wore glasses were thought to be more intelligent and truthful. A more recent study, that one is from the 1940s, found that defendants who wore eyeglasses received fewer guilty verdicts, 44%, than defendants who didn't, 56%. The faster you talk, the more persuasive you are, says Michael J. Uh, Lavaglia in his book Knowing People, The Personal Use of Social Psychology. This is probably why most lawyers instruct their clients to speak faster when they take the stand, and all of these are just small ways that lawyers manipulate their clients so that they can manipulate the jury's decision. None of these ought to have much of an impact on whether or not a person committed a crime, but they do, and far too often jurors subconsciously succumb to these changes and unknowingly lean one way or another. Average civilians who don't know what to look for in terms of changes are thus unable to recognize their biases, and that's one of the biggest problems with our jury system, is the manipulation of it. Another big argument that's often put against the jury system is that jurors don't know the cases, including the law and the specialties that are required. Uh, oftentimes, jurors receive a brief review of the law, but more and more evidence is starting to indicate that a brief review of the law barely does anything to help jurors who don't understand the legal system. A University of Michigan study of 224 uh, potential Michigan jurors concluded, quote, jurors understand fewer than half of the instructions they receive at trial, end quote. An English study conducted at the University College London found that two out of three jurors did not understand the legal directions given to them, although it's worth noting that in England, jurors are selected at random and the process for dismissal is not as widely used as it is in America. Daniel Solove, who's the John Marshall Harlan Research Professor of Law at the George Washington University Law School, uh, who wrote on the blog Concurring Opinions, quote, It takes law students three years to learn the law, or at least a semester to learn specific subjects like torts. And yet juries are expected to understand the law after just one brief lecture from the judge. Who are we kidding when we think that the jury is really applying the law? Juries probably have little to no idea about what the law is, end quote. Right? The law is pointless if the jurors don't know how to uphold it properly, and many argue that the jury system contributes to the growing epidemic of, epidemic of uninformed jurors. It's uh, Robert Hain in the North American Review who wrote, quote, It would be surprising if an untrained man hearing a lecture once upon a subject, a new subject, should be able to seize upon the rules, exceptions, and qualifications stated therein, so as to be able to apply them correctly. I believe that juries do not succeed in doing so once in a hundred times. Cases where they render both a special and general verdict furnish frequent examples of this, and if any judge will take pains to talk familiarly with judges after a trial as to the grounds of their decision, as this writer has frequently done, he will often be amazed at their crude notions of what has been told them. End quote. On top of that, it's not uncommon for juries to be presented with faulty evidence, and it leaves the jurors unable to decipher the difference between good and bad evidence in a court case. 
Consider the case of Sally Clark, an English woman who was accused of murdering her two newborn children. Her first child had died days after being taken home from the hospital in 1996, and her second the same in 1998. Clark came that the, uh, claimed that the two children had died of sudden infant death syndrome, or SIDS, but the prosecution cried foul. They brought in an expert witness, a pediatrician Sir Roy Meadow, who claimed that the chance of two children from an affluent family uh, dying like that of SIDS was 1 in 73 million. He had gotten this number by taking the chance of one child in an affluent family, being about uh, 1 in 8,500, and then multiplied it by itself in order to get uh, 73 million, assuming that the chances of a second child dying of SIDS in an affluent family would be the same as the first. After the trial, statisticians across the world jumped on Meadow for claiming 1 in 73 million to be the number, pointing out that to make the independent assumption that the chances are the same the second time is ludicrous, when it's likely that the two deaths were connected, either given genetic or environmental factors. Groups like the Royal Statistics Society criticized Meadow, a pediatrician, for making these assumptions, but the jury had no way of knowing otherwise. The jury, not being statisticians or mathematicians in a case involving statistics, were left to assume that that number was correct when somebody with a background in those fields could have seen through it. Here's Peter Donnelly, an Oxford statistician, explaining the danger of letting a jury without statistical expertise deal with statistics. And just to finish in the, in the context of the legal system, it's all very well to say, let's do our best to present the evidence. But more and more in cases of DNA profiling, uh, this is another one. We expect juries, who are ordinary people, and it's documented they're very bad at this, we expect juries to be able to cope with the sorts of, of reasoning that goes on. In, in other spheres of life, if people are argued, well, except possibly for politics, but in other spheres of life, if people argued illogically, we'd say that's not a good thing. We sort of accept it as politicians and, and don't hope for much more. In the case of uncertainty, we get it wrong all the time. And at the very least, we should be aware of that, and ideally, we might try and do something about it. Thanks very much. Let's talk about reforms. There's three kind of key reforms I want to talk about now. Uh, the first one of those reforms that's often proposed to address the issue of jurors misunderstanding cases and the evidence that's presented in them is to have a specialist foreman rather than some electee. This would mean in a case dealing with financial crime, the jury foreman would be picked by the court to be someone who has a background in finance. Or in a case dealing with medicine, the foreman would be somebody you know, with a background in medicine. Right? The obvious upsides to that being that they're able to inform the jury about a complex case. They're able to correct other members of the jury if they say something that's incorrect when deliberating the case uh, behind closed doors, right? Things that could lead to a wrongful conviction. You know, it would make for a jury that then could presumably reach a more informed decision. But there are two major downsides, right? The first being that that individual foreman, specialist foreman's opinion might carry too much weight and that jurors might take too much of a notice of their decision rather than listening to the facts of the case. If we did this, there could also be a conflict of interest problem, right? If a person involved in finance is the jury foreman on a case dealing with insider trading, and the foreman has a vested interest because they have a background in finance, in this case setting a precedent for the relaxation of insider trading laws, then the jury foreman will, you know, obviously lead the jury towards an acquittal. This would mean that if a specialist jury foreman was to be appointed, there would have to be a serious vetting process for it. Another uh, common a reform that has been suggested is that we require jurors to give reasons for their decisions. That doesn't mean the decision reasoning has to be public. It could instead be given to the judge or the prosecution and the defense. This would mean that, uh, you know, this could mean that only the jury foreman would have to write a short paper detailing why the jury felt the way it did, or that everyone on the court has to write something individually, maybe anonymously. This would help the prosecution and the defense improve. It could help judges make sure that the jury properly understood the legal proceedings and what went on, 
and it could also help determine what flaws exist in the system. If there's an apparent bias that affected the outcome of the trial, then the jury, or the judge, I mean, could identify it in juror reflections, and if a retrial is needed, order one. The difficulty, of course, with this is, uh, you know, in requiring jurors who are ordinary people off the street to write up their thoughts, it might not be as easy of a task as it initially could come across. It could delay the verdict of a trial by hours depending on how good of writers the jurors are and the time that they take in order to summarize their thoughts properly. On top of that, and this is probably the bigger reason why a lot of people oppose requiring jurors to give reasons, is that it could open the door for the prosecution and defense to try and find examples of bias and seize on them, even if they're not there, for the sake of acquittals. This could result in a massive influx of unwarranted acquittal applications, and it could seriously cloud up the uh, judicial criminal, or the you know judicial system, the criminal uh, justice system. Now, the third major reform that has been suggested would be to introduce more verdicts for juries to choose from during a trial. The current general verdict of not guilty obscures distinctions between bases for acquittal, and thereby makes the meaning of every acquittal dangerously ambiguous, writes Professor Paul Robinson and Assistant Professor Michael K. Hill in their book Law Without Justice. In addition to guilty and not guilty, a common suggestion has been not proven, like they have in Scotland, actually. Not proven would result in an acquittal, but mean the jury was unable to say conclusively that the defendant didn't commit the crime. A not proven verdict, like I said, already exists in Scotland, and many people think that we should bring it here. They argue that a not proven verdict could help us gain more information about how well our legal system is functioning. It could provide defendants, prosecutors, and lawyers with more information on how best to handle their cases. They know what had swayed that jury, maybe enough or not enough, and that could help them better understand and enact the law in the future. It would help employers who want to have a better understanding of their hires and the potential dangers that they bring to the workplace even if they were acquitted. It's Menzies Campbell, who was a member of the English Parliament and defended the not proven uh, verdict on the floor uh, by putting it like this, quote, In the mind of one of my constituents, who is the victim of a sexual assault, that verdict has continued to prove a justification, provide a justification for her courage in exposing herself to cross-examination in court. Anyone with any understanding of the position in which a female victim finds herself when she claims that she has been the victim of sexual assault will appreciate the fact that it is often an act of considerable bravery for that individual to stand up in court, give evidence, and be subjected to a rigorous and sometimes most unpleasant cross-examination about her sexual history. In the case that I mentioned, my constituent took comfort from the fact that, although her evidence was apparently insufficient on its own to bring home guilt on her assailant, she did not face what she would have regarded as the horror of seeing him offer the unqualified certificate of good character, to which a not guilty verdict would have entitled him, end quote. And it's a great example of, uh, you know, where somebody didn't receive the verdict that they were looking for, but where the idea of a not proven verdict in real life brought some comfort to them. It, it met a middle ground and it helped them move on with their lives. With all of that said, some people believe that adding a not proven verdict could only confuse jurors and make it more difficult for a jury to reach a decision. It could complicate the legal process and stretch out the time a trial takes, uh, you know, given that a jury might have difficulty reaching a single decision when the legal outcome won't be different. It could make, you know, again, harder for juries to reach a decision, and that could seriously delay the amount of time a jury has to deliberate for. It could make it harder to get more cases into trial and help bring justice to more people. It could uh, infringe on people's right to a speedy trial. Here's Arlen Specter, who's a U.S. senator, uh, or he was a U.S. senator in the Clinton impeachment trials, uh, you know, defending his vote on the Clinton, on the Clinton impeachment, where he tried to vote uh, under a not proven verdict rather than guilty or not guilty, although his vote, despite being cast as not proven, was ultimately recorded as not guilty. Here's Senator Specter. 
Under Scottish law, there are three possible verdicts, guilty, not guilty, and not proved. And I intend to vote not proved as to both articles. That is not to say uh, that the president is not guilty, uh, but to specifically say that the charges, in my judgment, have not been proved. Now, I want to talk about hypothetical alternatives to the jury system that we have in place. Uh, Richard Posner, who's a judge uh, on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit and a senior lecturer at the University of Chicago Law School, laid out these categories for alternatives. If we were going to replace the jury system, these being the, altern the uh, categories that whatever alternative we propose ought to meet. The first one being that the procedure must conform to a model of rational litigant behavior. This is a pretty simple understandable standard. Posner is saying that any alternative must be structured around the ability of the litigants and their lawyers to think logically and clearly, right? They have to, you know, have rational thought processes, uh, thought processes like were laid out in the first statement there, right? Rational litigant behavior. We have to assume that whatever system we put forward, uh, you know, relies on the ability of uh, people participating in the judicial system to think logically and clearly. The second standard is the success or failure of the procedure must be verifiable by accepted methods of social scientific hypothesis testing. And again, I think that's pretty straightforward. It has to be scientifically uh, verifiable, whatever the outcomes will be. Third, any alternative to the trial must respect relevant legal and institutional constraints, including those derived from the separation of powers in our constitutional system. Again, it's, you know, a separation of power thing. We have to continue to make sure that we don't hand power over to the government to abuse uh, the judicial powers that were entrusted to them. They have to respect relevant legal and institutional constraints. You know, they have to respect that the judicial system must be handled separately from the legislative or the executive powers like they were not in uh, several of the abusive governments that are cited, uh, that the founding fathers cited in their reasoning behind uh, adding constraints like these on the Constitution. And fourth, any proposed reform must move the legal system in the right direction, where right is defined in accordance with broad social policy rather than narrow craft standards of success. Basically saying that, you know, any proposal must uh, consider what society would want the outcome to be, like the jury system does because you're drawing, you know, nine random civilians off the street. Whatever the alternative is, it must consider what right is. Uh, just kind of consider those four standards for uh, alternatives as we look at the two alternatives that are proposed here. Now, the first alternative method would really only work with civil cases, and it's called a summary jury trial. It may not sound different at first than a normal jury, but I think it becomes clearer as it goes on. A summary jury trial works basically like this. Let's say a person brings a civil suit against someone else. The, lawyer, uh, the lawyers right now have two options. The two parties can try to reach an out-of-court settlement and agreement, usually financial. Uh, but if they can't, then they'll take it to trial, and whatever happens at trial will be binding. A summary jury trial is inserted in between those two steps, though. If an initial settlement can't be reached between the two parties, then rather than going to a full-blown trial with a binding agreement at the end, the two parties could engage in a summary jury trial, which is basically a mini-trial. It's shorter, it's less in-depth, there are no witnesses, the jury selection process is not nearly as finicky, and there's little, uh, limited argumentation. It's just a way to present a jury with a rundown of what the major evidence and arguments are on both sides. It ideally wouldn't take less than a day, and the jury delivers a, ver a verdict. It's not binding, but it does provide both parties with a chance to see where a jury would lean, and the idea is that it would help the parties reach an agreement. It gives leverage to one side or the other, presumably the side that's in the right in the suit, and can help alleviate stalemates in, order in a settlement in order to avoid a regular, very expensive, full-blown trial. 
many people who argue that a summary jury trial should be used on a much more widespread scale for civil suits argue that it saves time, money, and helps make the process more peaceful. The idea that it saves time is pretty logical, right? A summary jury trial only handles a rundown of the arguments and the evidence, and it should ideally last under a day. The points are kept relatively brief, and the evidence is not examined in depth. This means, too, that a defendant's right to a speedy trial could be better upheld. Posner argues that if two-thirds of summary jury trials resulted in a successful mediation, that we could save 10% of judge time, meaning that uh, judges as a total time could cut back 10% of their their work, and in that time take on more cases to get more cases through the legal system. Now, from the point of saving time comes the obvious point about saving money. Each day that a civil trial drags on, the state is covering the cost. Federal jurors, jurors are paid $40 a day, while in California and Florida, jurors are paid $15 a day, and most numbers uh, range somewhere in between there. Many gravitate towards 15 or 20 though. Uh, although it's worth noting that pay goes up as the trial goes on. On top of that, the state subsidizes the cost for defendants who cannot afford counsel and are unable to find a lawyer to represent them pro bono. Consider, too, that judges, bailiffs, stenographers, clerks, and so on, as well as uh, the resources for running a trial, like electricity, water, etc., are all covered by the state. Cutting back the time that a trial would take by not having to go to a full-blown trial and instead going to summary jury trials uh, would help save costs on all of those as well. Lastly, by pushing the two parties to come to an agreement together, rather than having a punishment imposed upon one party, it could help alleviate some of the tensions, especially after the parties leave. The idea of employing a summary jury trial is not without its critics. For one thing, many people argue that by putting the two parties through a mock trial, they force the parties to disclose all of their arguments and evidence prematurely, and thus it robs both sides of the ability to use certain tactics that rely on surprise to reach uh, their ultimate goal of success in the trial. On top of that, concerns have been raised that lawyers would find a way to use summary jury trials to drag out trials and settlements. Lastly, uh, summary jury trials haven't been tried widely enough to draw any conclusive data about their uh, efficacy. The idea that they would push the two parties towards an agreement is only hypothetical. When summary jury trials were uh, implemented in Ohio, there was not a definitive drop in the number of trials. Despite these, many people view the wider implementation of summary jury trials, which would be a fairly sweeping change, in our uh, criminal justice cis area, in our civil justice system, as a way to lessen the amount of trials held up in our legal system. Now, the second alternative that I want to talk about is the idea of using professional jurors, right? To have jurors be people employed by the court full-time to judge cases. Uh, the first big, big point in favor of this, right, is that professional jurors would have a better understanding of the legal system, and thus less likely to have the severe misunderstandings that many of the jurors that we talked about earlier had in the studies that were done. On top of that, professional jurors could be less susceptible to strong emotions. After describing a series of problems with jurors similar to ones that we've addressed today on the episode, uh, in her Huffington Post piece, Professional Jurors, has the time come, uh, journalist Diane Dimond writes, quote, Add to this confusing realm the possibility that panelists might be exposed to grisly crime scene or autopsy photos of tiny children. In rare trials, they will be asked to vote on whether the defendant should be put to death for the crime they committed. Some people can take the strain and bounce back from judging others, while some citizens come away shell-shocked, end quote. Professional jurors could be normalized to scenes of violence that would otherwise affect normal civilian jurors so traumatically that it would push the jury towards one end severely. The ability to stay level-headed and not overreact to gruesome images would mean a jury system that makes uh, less impulsive and reactive decisions. On top of that, lawyers often dismiss jurors during the jury selection process in order to create a jury that will lean towards their side of the trial. Nathan Koppel writes in the Wall Street Journal, quote, 
In the interest of fair trials, attorneys can dismiss people from the jury pools for dressing strangely, for being fat, or just for looking funny. What lawyers can't do is dismiss potential jurors based on their race, gender, or ethnicity. Yet, attorneys and academics say it happens all the time, end quote. But if all the jurors are vetted and approved beforehand, then they're employed and part of the system. They can't be so easily dismissed and manipulated by lawyers in order to create a skewed jury. Now, professional jurors obviously have their opposition, right? And the first big one is, I think, what you would expect. That, you know, the jury system as it exists to draw random civilians off the street is done so that, you know, rights, the rights that exist, that will, they're socially constructed to reflect community values. And many people argue that a professional jury robs them of that. Collective participation in the legal system is something that we talked about at the beginning of the episode and how vital it is to democracy. Professional jurors take that away by robbing the common people of their right to voice their opinion in the judicial system and influence law. It makes the cases less likely to reflect what public emotions and values would be if you have a set of professional jurors. Uh, lastly, professional jurors could po- or sorry, next, professional jurors could pose a unique conflict of interest. If you're a juror, then you're probably being employed by the state. And if you come to a case where you're being asked to vote against the state prosecutors in a case, it would mean that you're being asked as a professional juror to vote against your boss. And that poses, I think, you know, a pretty unique conflict of interest. Lastly, concerns have been raised about what will happen when jurors get similar cases, right? If a juror gets to hearing a certain type of case or a certain type of argument, they might begin to have a natural reaction. Every murder-suicide case will begin to seem the same to them, and so they'll begin to always react the same way, right? Guilty or non-guilty, or always begin to lean towards a certain verdict, and it could stop them from paying attention to the details and the specifics of each case. Over time, our judicial system has taken on a certain image, one of, well, aptly, I think, justice. Moments like Cicero's famous qui bono speech in front of a Roman jury, or Atticus Finch's famous speech in To Kill a Mockingbird, have become immortalized in their upholding of the law, in the way better phrase, that they persuaded a jury to uphold the law properly and bring down justice correctly. But more and more, those moments are becoming less and less realistic. Whether or not the jury system, in its ideal state or in its practical current state, is still a realistic model for upholding justice, whatever you take that word with its infinite definitions to mean, is up for debate. Think we missed something? Have a comment to add, a question, or any other observation? Email us at politicaltheorypodcast at gmail.com. That's politicaltheorypodcast at gmail.com. If it's relevant, I'll do my best to answer your question or add your comment on air. Visit our website, politicaltheorypodcast.com, and uh, be sure to tune in next time when we talk about the Eighth Amendment, Cruel and Unusual Punishment. Thanks for listening.